You are listening to the Gospel Teaching Series from Jubilee Church. This series takes a close look at the simplicity and depth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and its seemingly endless meaning and application for life. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning, everyone. How are you? Doing all right? Uh, As Dylan mentioned, my name is Greg Nelson. Um, I work as an orthopedic surgeon. I work at uh, SSM DePaul Hospital in the north part of town. Um, Every now and then I have an opportunity to uh, speak to the church from God's word. And um, I'm really excited. Uh, I've been personally felt very impacted by this text and uh, the the message that we have. And so I pray that it's a blessing to you as it has been to me. Uh, Let me pray for us. Uh, Father God, I thank you for this word, I thank you for Peter, the, uh, the preeminent apostle, and what he t- writes to us today. I think it is uh, timely and uh, important for us. I pray that you would uh, grant us your spirit to uh, propel us forward into your vision and your plan, your destiny that you have for us as a church. And we ask that you would come and have your way in this place. Uh, dear Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God my rock and my redeemer. Amen. In 1970, 11% of adult Americans expressed regular or frequent feelings of loneliness. That number rose to 29% in 1980. But in 2010, that number had ballooned to 45%. Now that was eight years ago. So I suspect that the 2020 number will be greater than 50%. 50%, 50% of adult Americans admitting that regularly they are experiencing loneliness. So how is it that in a day and age when we have more rapid access to other humans, when I am constantly bombarded with messages, when I'm expected to be within a hand's reach of an iPhone at all times, that we would be less connected than we've ever been? Could it be that 280 characters isn't enough to express a real connection, a meaningful bond? Now, social scientists will tell us that our loneliness is a biological warning sign meant to help us uh, stay connected and uh, to avoid straying too far from the tribe as if somehow there was strength in numbers. But the Bible tells us that we were made in the image of a triune God perfectly coexisting in three persons from eternity. A familial relationship where each individual is experiencing the greatness of the others. Our need for intimacy reflects God's relational nature. Now, if you've read the creation story, you'll remember that in the creation, everything is good. Seven times the creation is good. And the seventh time, it is exceedingly good. 
There's only one deficiency in God's wonderful creation. And that is the absence of a human community. So enter Eve, the dawn of human community. And in chapter one, God gives this command to the fledgling community. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That is, fill the world with people, spread my culture and my values, exercise authority as my deputies. Now, hopefully you are reading the Old Testament with us as we read through the Bible in a year. In it, we see that God is intensely interested in human communities. Noah's Ark, the Tower of Babel, the call of Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah. These are just a few of the biblical narratives that are focused on how sin has corrupted human community. And in today's passage, we have a commentary on human community. However, this time the apostle Peter is describing the traits of a redeemed gospel people, a community where Jesus Christ is Lord and the, realize, the realization of what he has done for us reorients our priorities. In fact, Peter is revealing God's plan to use community to reach the world. Let's reread our passage. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In this passage, we find four distinguishing aspects of our identity in Christ that form the foundation of becoming a gospel people. Four aspects of our identity that are the foundation for becoming a gospel people. First, a chosen race. The Greek word for race here is genos, which sounds a lot like the English word genetics, and it's supposed to. There's a clear reference to a familial relation here. This makes sense, though. The Bible tells us that if we've placed our faith in Christ, we have been inducted into his family. As followers of Christ, we receive a new nature, a spiritual DNA, if you will, that is distinctly different from the old self and the old life. Our new family, our spiritual genos, provides us with a new allegiance to God's distinct culture and God's distinct values. Now, if that weren't enough, Peter writes to them that we are chosen. Peter recognizes the church as a fulfillment of these ancient proclamations about the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. Deuteronomy 14 says this, for you are a people holy to the Lord, your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Greek for chosen is the root of the English word elect, as in the doctrine of election. This is the Christian belief that we didn't choose God, but that God chose us. In fact, 
we had made a wreck of our lives. We were spiritually dead, unable to desire God, unable to move toward God, unable to even call out for God. But God, in his great mercy, reached down and saved us. He came after us. He chose us and has made us alive together with Christ. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. The knowledge of God's sovereign action in choosing us would have been very important to the people who received Peter's letter. You see, they were Jewish Christians who had been scattered because of intense persecution, left their homes, left their families, forced to the fringes of society. I guess being a religious refugee is nothing new. And for them, the reminder that God had sovereignly chosen them and that this was God's plan and that despite the fact that their lives felt like they were totally wildly out of control, that God was a loving father who was watching over them would have been a great comfort to them as it should be to us. Now, second, we are a royal priesthood. Exodus 19 says this, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests? This actually seems very strange to me. I mean, typically, you only really need one priest in a community. The priest's job is to be a mediator between God and man. So he represents God to the people through teaching and counseling and some religious-y stuff. And he represents the people back to God through prayers and sacrifices and religious-y stuff. I mean, why would you need more than one priest? That just sounds like a lot of priests. I mean, if the whole kingdom is priests, then who are they ministering to? To the rest of the world, in fact. You see, you might reach a small town or a parish with a single priest, but if you're going to reach the entire world, well, you need a lot of priests, a kingdom of priests. God's plan in calling the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and delivering them into the promised land was not simply to free them for freedom's sake or to free them so that they could become who they wanted to be and do whatever they wanted to do. No, it was because God needed a people in the earth as his representative, a nation, a collective representative. Rather than an individual identity, this is a corporate calling. Peter takes this Old Testament concept uh, of God's chosen community, and he, now he applies it to the church, to those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Not only do we represent God together, it is our radical togetherness that represents God to the world. Third, a holy nation. The word holy is pretty common, pretty familiar in religious circles, but not always easy to define, not always well understood. In most instances, holy means set apart or reserved for some special purpose. This is first and foremost a status that's actually bestowed on the holy object from the outside. In this way, God's people are set apart, reserved for God's purpose, for God's tasks. In addition, because of the great importance of the task, that is, God's mission to reach the world, 
Our holiness or our set-apartness must be evidenced by our actions, the way that we live. We actually live differently in order to show forth God's plan. Now, we often think individualistically about things like personal holiness or personal morality, such as when Paul writes that our bodies are a temple to the Holy Spirit. I mean, the clear understanding here is that we should avoid sin and we should live for God so that God's glory could be on display. But earlier in this same chapter, Peter writes this. He writes that Christ followers are stones, living stones being built together into a spiritual house. Again, Peter's emphasis is on our shared identity and our shared mission. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor, theologian, and political prisoner of the Nazis during World War II, wrote a truly wonderful book about Christian community. It's called Life Together. In it, he says this, the individual must realize that his hours of aloneness react upon the community. There is no sin in thought or word or deed, no matter how personal or secret, that does not inflict injury upon the whole fellowship. Therefore, there is no such thing as a private sin or a victimless crime. The life we live when we are apart impacts the life that we share when we're together. Together, we can participate in our success or our failure because only together can we be a nation that is set apart for God's mission. So fourth, a people of his own possession. We're not just a collection of persons. There's a distinct difference between people, plural, and a people, singular. Referring to a group of people as a people is not simply lumping them together. I mean, there is an assumption that there must be something intrinsically connecting them beforehand, some shared ancestry or language or culture. I've heard that the church is supposed to be an embassy of God's kingdom. Well, when you step inside of an embassy, you step onto land that is actually owned and operated by a foreign power, some other king. As an American citizen, I can't just rush into any embassy if I want to. I have to have permission from that power to enter the embassy. And when I get in there, I notice that it's very different. There's a different flag that flies, different clothes that are worn, different language that is spoken, different culture, different values. This should be true of the church. Then when those who are on the outside of the family of faith come in to our community, they should see that it is different. That we have an allegiance to a different king. We have different values that we speak to each other differently, that we don't just import the world. Now, as Americans, we often treat relationships as a feel-good add-on to our lives. We surround ourselves with others when it, is, it feels, like, feels good to us or uh, if we feel that they are good for us. I mean, think about networking, right? What can we, how can I manipulate this or work this? How can I get to know this guy? And maybe I can get here and get that and these connections. And sadly, we don't always hesitate to disconnect or to separate ourselves from others when it gets tough. I mean, people are needy. But hear what Peter is saying. If you belong to Jesus Christ, being a part of the community is not optional. 
It's not something you choose to participate in if it's working for you. Or It's who you are now in Christ. There is no such thing as the lone wolf Christian, me and Jesus making our way. If you are a Christ follower, your identity is to belong to God's chosen race, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, the people of his own possession. In fact, only in the midst of the life of the community can you truly become who God intends you to be. God's plan is to redeem us, to redeem us together, and to redeem the whole world through us. For some of us, this is a daunting realization, really bad news. But to others of us, it offers great hope. Are you one of the 50% suffering, struggling with isolation and loneliness? Do you yearn for a real connection? Do you long to truly be known and to truly be loved? God says that there's a family for you. At the outset, I called Peter's description here a, a gospel people or a gospel community. So how does the gospel draw in people from all walks of life, from all over the world, and bind them together in this kind of community? Paul's letter to the church in Rome gives us a hint of this. In Romans 3, he tells us this, that the gospel first levels the playing field. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when you think about yourself and your self-identity, I don't know what group you put yourself in. I don't know what uh, allegiances you might have. I don't know how you define yourself. But what this tells us is it doesn't matter what group you're in, what tribe you come from, doesn't matter where you were born. Every person is accountable to God for their sin. And if you think, well, I can't really be in relationship with this guy or with that girl, every person is at the same place. But thank God that the gospel doesn't stop there. It goes on to tell us this, that though all have sinned, all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so the gospel can take people from everywhere, people who look at each other and don't believe that they can relate and says, actually, you share the most profound thing in common and you are a sinner and you are deserving of wrath. But God on your behalf has made you one through Christ if you've placed your faith in Christ. So Galatians 3 takes this a step further. For as many of you who were baptized in the Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So these divisions, these distinctions have been obliterated. It's true, Jews didn't become Greeks and Greeks didn't become Jews. Men didn't become women. The distinctions still exist, Jews and Greeks, but the division on the basis of their differences have been erased, completely obliterated. And now they have been united under a new identity, that is, 
the family of God. Abraham's heirs. In another place, Paul takes the people illustration. He takes it a step further. We're not just members of the same race or people group, but members of the same body. Listen to this. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, all were made to drink one spirit. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the foot, I have no need of you, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. This blows my mind. Together in Christ, God has ordained us to have a profound interrelatedness and interdependence. Do you know anyone who has cut off his own hand? No, I do. As an orthopedic surgeon, I have the privilege of putting those hands back on. Seriously. When I was a resident at Barnes, I treated a young man who cut off his arm with a table saw. Just like so. Now you can imagine he wasn't very happy about it. He was really quite sheepish about it, actually. Here's the point. No one cuts off his hand gladly. So we too should fight to maintain the unity that we have in the Spirit. Because to be estranged from a brother or a sister in the Lord is to cut off our hands and cut off our feet. In fact, right now, humor me. Take a moment, turn to the person on your right and say to them, you are my right hand. Okay, come on, not all at the same time. Okay, turn to the left. You are my left hand. Seems weird, I know. But what would a community be like if we really owned this? Now, I'm happy to say that I have seen instances of radical community here at Jubilee Church. My community group had a, a member, a young lady who was ill, and um, the prospect of her medical treatment actually uh, left her uh, quite um, anxious. Uh, the, the immense cost of the treatment would uh, likely have uh, bankrupted her. She had a great deal of anxiety over this, um, really fear. And uh, she didn't like to talk about it. She didn't know what she was going to do. Um, a couple from our group sat down with her and over coffee, drew out the details, got the nitty gritty. And then they convened our group so that we could pray for her and brainstorm. Now, God provided miraculously. God led her to a treatment um, program or facility or whatever that uh, had slashed the cost from tens of thousands of dollars to thousands of dollars. Still a great, uh, great challenge. Uh, and in the group, we stood in the gap for her. You know, we provided her with transportation and um, practical help, car maintenance, things like that. And, and actually, the group took a collection of their own dollars and provided her with the funds to get into her treatment, get her treatment started. 
Now that for me, that felt like an Acts chapter two moment. That was really exciting. You know, Acts chapter two tells us that um, the people were devoted to teaching. They were selling their possessions to make sure that everyone's needs were being met and there was no lack among them and that people were added to their number. Now, the good news is that it doesn't take a crisis to bring out community. You can practice gospel community anytime. In fact, I'm sure that there are big and small examples or instances of this in our church every, every week. But as I considered Peter's sermon and his vision for this community, I realized you know, we still have a ways to go. So I thought of six challenges to this kind of community, six barriers, things that are keeping us from experiencing this the way that Peter describes it. Now, fortunate for you, I don't have time to get into all of them. I only had to give you three. So here they go. The first challenge, individualism. Modern Americans operate under the assumption that the greatest freedom is freedom from obligation rather than freedom for service. Stanley Hauerwas, a professor of theology at Duke University, says this. He says, modern people usually seek individuality through the severance of restraints and commitments. Peter doesn't like that. As you can see, Peter roots our identity in our connectedness, first to God, but no less to each other. No one can be a race, a priesthood, a nation, or a people by himself. So Peter would say, you're going against the grain. This isn't what you were made for. Now, I know that I am guilty in this area because I'm a parent. I used to not be a parent, and then I became a parent. When I wasn't a parent, it was easy for me to arrange my schedule and my life around the things that I wanted to accomplish. But once I became a parent, I was thrust into this war against my own self-exaltation. Case in point, last night, like many nights, I watched my wife get up in the middle of the night to calm a screaming child. And I didn't get up to help her. And I know that some of you are judging me for that. And that's okay because I deserve it. But just so you know, I have tried to help her. There was a time when I naively believed that I could get up in the middle of the night and I could calm that screaming child and I could save my wife from this turmoil. But after five or six nights of being punched in the face and kicked in the gut by a toddler who says, you're not mommy, I want mommy. I quickly realized that second-class parent is spelled D-A-D. At least that's how my kids spell it. So now I say, honey, I'm so sorry. And I roll over in bed. Because why should we both suffer? Really. Now, if I have difficulty being moved by my obvious physical and genetic connection to these children, that I'm sure that I have let you down in some way because of my weak view of Christian family. But the good news is that in Christ, we are set free, free from shame, free from guilt. But our freedom is not a freedom to be used selfishly for sleep or whatever our desires are 
but rather to be used for the benefit of others. Paul writes this in Galatians 5. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So the easiest advice that I have for you for deprogramming your individualism is to practice loving your brothers and sisters in Christ as you love yourself. Now, I know that sounds a little too simple to be of any practical use. I almost left it out of the sermon. But think of it this way. In the course of a week, you think about and make a lot of decisions. What will I cook for dinner? When can I make it to the grocery store? Do I need to stop by the dry cleaners? What are we doing Friday night? Why not start incorporating others into those natural rhythms of life? I put a lasagna in the oven. Are you hungry? Did that go to you? No? Okay. Hey, I'm at Schnooks. Can I pick up anything for you? By incorporating others into these practices, we remind ourselves of the people that we're connected to, and we show care for them throughout the week. Now, if that's too easy for you, fine. Try this one. So we were living in Arizona last year, and... um, had these kids and they don't sleep and we knew we needed help. So uh, my wife's parents live here in St. Louis. So we moved back to St. Louis. Now, no one gladly lives to be, moves to be closer to their in-laws. But I had a strong desire actually to return to this community, to serve with you guys, to live my life with you guys. Congratulations to you. So I quit my job and uh, I went back and I retrained. I learned new kinds of surgery, which is you know, troublesome. And uh, then I found a new job in St. Louis, thank the Lord. <laughs> uh, and then we bought a house. We bought a house like eight minutes from here. It's a big house, so you should come and fill it. Because we wanted to have a, a space where we could connect with you all. We could engage the community, where we could uh, serve our neighbors. Um, We make a lot of big and small decisions in our lives. What if we started incorporating God's family into our decision-making? What kind of community would that make us? All right, the second challenge. The second challenge is marginalization. That's a long word, marginalization. I have been both a witness to and a perpetrator of comments and their underlying attitudes that contribute to the marginalization of others. I'm saddened when I consider the number of times I have heard someone make a belittling comment or a derogatory joke about another group, be it on the basis of their race, religion, country of origin, sexual orientation, political views, or even their hometown, except for Cubs fans, of course. (laughs) I'm even more ashamed when I consider how often I have chosen to stay silent because I was unwilling to associate myself with the group in question. I admit it, I was a coward. But the savior that I need is a savior who associates with the lowly, the marginalized, the ostracized. A savior who came to people who look differently from him and speak differently from him. 
and lived their experience and suffered in their place, in the place that they deserved to be, that I deserved to be. A savior who understands that rejection is the price of showing God's love. That is how we learned Christ. There are people in our church today, no doubt, who feel unwelcome, misunderstood because of our insensitivity over issues of race, class, same-sex attraction, poverty, even age. A gospel people, rather than smiling with their lips and biting and devouring each other with their teeth, will seek out the people who are on the fringes, drawing them into community, into Christ's family, because Christ did that for us. So when I come to church, I'm always looking to introduce myself to someone that I don't know, someone who doesn't look like me or dress like me or speak like me, so that they would know that the invitation of Christ is for all. Our third challenge Competing allegiances. They used to say that Sunday is the most segregated day in America. And for a time, maybe a brief time, that trend was, was reversing with the emergence of more and more multi-ethnic churches. But a recent article describes the disturbing reversal of that trend, a return to the status quo, a consequence of our ever-polarized political environment. I was saddened when I read this story. It's a story about how political differences of opinion are dividing American churches along color lines. We Christians can sometimes be guilty of choosing our politics and our personal preferences over our brothers and sisters in the Lord. But it shouldn't be that way. We, where sin once separated us, the gospel has united us. They say blood is thicker than water. Well, the spilled blood of the lamb that bought our redemption and united us together should be the thickest of all. If we are truly one body, then the blood of Christ flows through our collective veins. And if we fail to see each other this way, if we treat the, the risk of uh, division like a, with half-hearted resistance, then we're like a man walking around, cutting off his fingers, gouging out his eyes. And if that weren't bad enough, Paul tells us that the church is the bride of Christ. Imagine that you went away on a trip and you came back to find that someone had assaulted your fiance, had mutilated her or maimed her. What would you do to that villain? I pray that when Christ returns, that he will not be disappointed in the way that we have treated his bride. This one is not simple. But let's not make secondary issues primary. Let's keep the gospel primary. Where we disagree, let's choose to hear each other's passion, to share each other's pain. But most importantly, let us embrace each other in our Christian fellowship over and above any other competing allegiance that could divide us. I pray for the day when stories of division in churches would cease. And instead, we would be hearing stories of a radical connectedness that overcomes every barrier, every distinction, every division. 
those stories will proclaim the excellencies of Christ, but only to the degree that we make the gospel primary. Application. Where do we go from here? How are we going to become a community like this? So distinct that people on the outside would give God glory when he returns. Peter acknowledges that our most profound response to this message is not a list of do's and don'ts, not a list of uh, morality or uh, behavior modification. No, first and foremost, the gospel gives us a new identity, a collective identity. We have seen in this sermon series that the gospel is first news, news about what God has done for us to redeem us, to save us, to deliver us, to make us one. And then the gospel gives us new action, a new lifestyle. And when that lifestyle is hard, because it will be difficult at times, the gospel changes our attitudes. It changes what we love on the inside. This progression is no less important for us as we consider being a gospel people. The reason that God chose a people in the first place is so that they would proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And together we can proclaim his excellencies in a way that we cannot when we're separated to overcome the inconvenience of relationship and the divisions is to show that Christ is more valuable and his work is more profound. I thought of two ways that we proclaim the excellencies of Christ, or at least two directions. One is inward and one is outward. Inwardly, we proclaim Christ's excellencies when we say to one another, Christ is better than the pleasure of sin. Let's walk this way together. That's one of the reasons we put such a high value on doing life together in small groups throughout the week. There's no coincidence that we call them community groups. It would be impossible to get to know everyone in this room in a deep and personal way. But a community group provides us with a bite-sized opportunity to practice this. And not just practice it, but capitalize on the unity and connection that we already have because we share Jesus Christ. We see community groups as an on-ramp to engaging with this big vision that Peter has for us. But don't just show up. Break the mold. Think of your group like family. Pray for them. Spend time with the Lord throughout the week so you might have some, some nugget of uh, spiritual encouragement to bring to them. But most importantly, bear with them. <laughs> Put up with them. Carry each other's burdens. I mean, when we choose to be inconvenienced for the sake of a brother or a sister in the Lord, we show that Christ is more valuable than our own comfort. These simple steps can help you capitalize on the unity we already share and strengthen the life of your group together. In fact, by maximizing our opportunities for this inward proclamation, we are not only fulfilling Peter's vision, but we're tearing down these barriers we discuss. We tear down our individualism when we prioritize time together. We extend God's gracious invitation to all and fight against marginalization. And we work through our differences under the banner of Christ, not ignoring where we differ, but choosing to love in spite of our difference. There's also an outward proclamation here. In order to do this, we have to be visible. 
We cannot simply retreat from the world in our holy huddle. Now, I understand life is hard. And there will be times when we all feel weary and heavy laden, burdened with the cares of this life. And we need a safe place to go to be encouraged in the Lord. And community groups can certainly be that. But if every gathering of your group feels like a retreat, then is the gospel advancing among us? Or are we simply retreating? Now, this is one of the reasons that we've organized our community groups into hubs. If you don't know what the hubs are, great, let me introduce you to it. Hubs are regional collections of community groups organized around a neighborhood so that we can encourage one another in our uh, attempts to get out into the neighborhood, to leave a real imprint there. If you haven't had conversations in your community group about this yet, then great. Let me take this opportunity to challenge you for all the groups this week to spend 10 or 15 minutes talking about hub service, but how we can partner with other groups and get out into the community. An easy first step would be to look for ways that people are already active in your community, whether it's a park cleanup day or uh, school tutoring. There are many opportunities to get out and to be visible so that our community and the love that we share for one another would be on display for others to see. The power for this change, for this devotion to gospel community, it's not gonna come through more rules or more things to do, more um, morality. It certainly doesn't come from dwelling on our past mistakes or shortcomings. Rather, when we experience the love of our Father, a Father who gave us mercy when we had no mercy, who made us a people when we were not a people, we will discover that replicating that love, well, it's part of our spiritual DNA. It's a trait that we inherited from our Father. Now, it will require us to exchange our radical individualism for radical connectedness. And it will require us to actively seek out those who are on the fringes. It will require us to fight for the unity that we share in the spirit. But the investment is worth it. Jesus certainly thought so. He sacrificed his body to make us a body. In order to redeem a people, these people, for his very own. So I invite you to join me as we move toward the Apostle Peter's vision for what a gospel people can be.